My name is Ian Kuli'i, um, hailing originally, I was born in Southern California, um, in Orange County, um, Fullerton to be exact, and then I was um, basically raised between Southern California and the island of Maui. I am part Mescalero Apache, um, Kanaka Maole, Native Hawaiian, um, and uh, of Jewish ancestry, so I'm quite the mixed individual. I guess like a a straddler of multiple worlds of sorts. So, um, yeah, um, background in, um, aerosol art is where I got my, my start. Um, but since then it's transitioned into, I guess what I'm known for, uh, is hand cut paper. So, um, rendering images with an exacto blade, um, yeah. And a singular sheet of paper. I have so many questions, it's really complicated for me to know where to begin, you know. I guess the main thing that I'm curious about, and that might be a good springboard, is finding out of your uh, mentorship under Doze Green, who is an artist that I've been fascinated with for a long time. Um, can you talk about that, and was that one of the most influential things in your life artistically? Definitely. I mean, um, so at an early age... Um, in the early eighties, I was completely, I guess like everybody else across the globe was taken by cultural hip hop. And it just so happened that the person I gravitated towards out of all of these cultural figures or within the culture was Doze Green. Um, I, I just, I loved his demeanor, you know, he was super animated, he was playful. And then he also had this like completely unapologetic approach to the way he danced, the way he painted and I, I basically spent a majority of my life emulating this guy. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it was, you know, completely biting his style, you know. Um, so back in Maui, one of my other mentors was a pioneer of, uh, I, I shouldn't say graffiti. Graffiti is like, you know, a term that like people like Phase 2 don't like to, you know, pi other pioneers don't like to be used. Um, so I guess aerosol art. Um, my mentor, Kuba, uh, who started it, in the Bay Area, who influenced like a lot of the, the people that came out of San, the San Francisco Bay Area, um, yeah, he uh, he told me that I needed to leave the Mau that I need to leave Maui and go and seek out a lot of the other pioneers from the East Coast before they passed away or ended up in jail or died from drug overdoses, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So that's what I did one day was I basically packed up my things with the girl I was with at the time and moved to the East Coast not really knowing anybody and um, just trying to expand and seeking out people like Doze Green. Um, strangely enough, when I landed here, Doze was not living on the East Coast. He was living in Hanamaui. <laughs> <laughs> so Oops. it was, it was, yeah, that was really bizarre because he was the dude that I was like, that Kuba told me to, to seek out. It was Tim and then like another Dr. Revolt who was actually my mentor Kuba's mentor so my grandmaster of sorts um another one of my grandmasters of sorts um so i got to meet him i got to meet some other very influential people within 
that cultural movement and that art movement. Um, but no dose green. So I started like, um, you know, building my reputation in, in my neighborhood. I, I, um, I met like a, a couple of curators and people that had small agitprop, you know, uh, DIY gallery spaces. Um, and then one of these spaces, uh, spaces, uh, this gentleman, Orlando Reyes, who I, I sort of credit with really pushing me when I first moved here, like in my, in my, uh, creative endeavors. Um, I walked into his gallery with, um, one of my collaborators at the time who's introducing me to Orlando. And I looked on the wall and I saw a doze green chalk tag on the brick wall. And I'm like, what's up with this doze green tag? And Orlando was like, well, you know who Doze Green is? And I'm like, uh, you know, if, I don't know who doesn't know. If you don't know who Doze Green is, you're a fucking idiot. Uh, so <laughs> I don't know, it's like this weird kind of thing. And he's like, oh, yeah, no, I get more artwork, you know, on the walls in the back. He just comes by here, hangs out, you know, and and I'll, I don't know, I'll give him like a, a Sharpie or, you know, a, a bottle of crink and he'll just go on the walls. So I'm like, all right, let me go take a look at this. And, you know, he's like, we. it took a while for he and I to kind of like build trust with each other. But as soon as... Um, he realized that I mean, East Coast people are super guarded, so especially the diehard kind of like people that were born and raised here. So as soon as like um, he realized that I wasn't just some some joker, just some clown like coming in to claim on like whatever, you know, this is my neighborhood now, like vibe. Uh, he kind of set it up. He's like, oh yeah, no, so Doze is coming back from Hawaii, right? <laughs> like coming back from Maui. I'm like, what? Um, you know, like I told him about you. Why don't we just all link up at the gallery one night, you know, have some beverages, just shoot the shit. So that happened. Orlando had some other stuff to do. So we, he and I just hung out all night. We played chess, drank some more. Uh, he got into a heated argument with this other dude. It almost turned into a fight. <laughs> it's kind of an interesting night. Um, and then from there, it just, we, uh, the relationship, um, we kept on building, you know, our friendship. Um, he asked me to help out uh, with a mural project at this penthouse in Soho. And, you know, I'm not going to turn that opportunity down to, to, like, study his techniques, you know, and, and just, like, I guess, like, be one with that energy. Like, why would anybody want to turn that down? It's like, and, you know, it's also yeah. one, like my life dream. So, um, yeah, and, and since that point, it's just, you know, I, I talked to him like weekly on the phone when he's not too busy on the farm, you know, or, or, uh, knee deep in shows when he has time to break away. We, you know, we keep channels open and, you know, he's a great mentor and like sort of big brother to have, you know, totally no nonsense too. Like if I'm, if I'm off on like some full on egocentric endeavor, he'll be like, listen here, motherfucker. It's he's, he's a guy to have on, on your side. What is the biggest thing that you took away from, that experience with him like was it technique or was it kind of just how to be in the world well the quote quote him like um style over technique style will always win so i think um just based off of that quote from him um it was seeking like from a certain point where i was like i was i was strictly focused on the technical side of things it was like not i wasn't learning how to develop my own style you know, so he kind of pushed me into developing my own style or um, or not not being afraid to actually explore and 
and take risks and, you know, and, and, and find my own style or, 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 you know, development in general. So, um, that, and then in everyday life as well, like just, you know, as hard, as hard of an individual that, that, you know, I can be and, um, as opinionated, I guess he's, he's taught me to like speak truth and be honest about my approach to things. But at the same time, just kind of like, I guess it's the easiest way to put it. Just like, don't be a dick. Um, your, your voice is valid. Everybody's opinion is valid. Um, but just don't be a dick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> From that point where you kind of were starting to learn your own style and your own technique, did you start to think about using your art as an artistic response to culture or incorporating your culture? So initially, um, yes, it was used to put more of like, I guess, my political mind and my cultural self. Um, And then that kind of started swaying more into like, seeking more of the esoteric and uh i guess what we would consider the unseen um sort of spiritual side of things and then that started transitioning as well and then both of them started to merge um well i mean i guess culturally it was always there like the spiritual is always there with the cultural um so those started to merge and then i started uh, i don't know like back to the whole you know egocentric side of things i started saying no i'm just a bad motherfucker like you know uh like i cut paper like a madman. So I'm just going to do things that aesthetic, aesthetically look, I guess, pleasing, you know, or in my mind, um, and focus more on that. Um, and now I'm kind of back into, I guess the original, um, reason why I started cutting paper, which was to convey that kind of political cultural, um, hybrid between the two. So right, like right now I'm working on that piece for the national museum of Mexican art for their traveling exhibition. And the piece basically deals with, um, well, it's based off of the book, The House on Mango Street. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that book. So basically the, the, the complete exhibition, they wanted different artists to sort of pick one of the vignettes from the, from the book and kind of play into their own personal experiences dealing with it. And they let us choose whatever vignette they, that we wanted. Um, and naturally I went with uh, those who don't because it deals with outsiders coming into the neighborhood and, you know, and, and judging and, and, and being fearful of people that are exist that exist in that neighborhood that are people of color primarily. And then it flips it, you know, about like if we go to their neighborhood, we kind of feel the same way. But um, I so I, I dealt with um, the central central Latino figure. Uh, another one is like an Afro Latino individual, because I I always love playing into the idea of like how um, there's still a weird portion of like the Latino community that denies like their African heritage or, you know, like people of, Af- of, of African descent that are also of, you know, Mexican or Central American or South American descent or, or damn Cherokees. Like now, like, I'm sorry, the <laughs> Cherokees are going to kill me for this, but like denying, you know, people like those, like those is, you know, is comes from uh, Cherokee descent, but his Cherokee descent is of, you know, slaves that either ran away or were, fr- or were freed and then procreated with some Cherokee individuals, right? So playing into that. And then the other individual is um, 
this gentleman who uh, sent me a photo through my friend Marina, who is being racially like he was racially profiled as uh, a Middle Eastern individual because he grew his beard out beard out. And so like I'm starting to notice this more. There's this like weird trend with Islamophobia that plays into like if you're a, a Latino and you grow your beard out or your hair out, all of a sudden you're lumped into being like this terrorist, especially here on the East Coast. It's intense. Like my friend LNY painted this amazing mural of our, of our friend Ralph, Ralph and this other individual, one of his other artist friends, um, beautiful, like three story or four story uh, mur- mural, like portrait of them. And all of the comments from the people in the neighborhood were like, you're a terrorist sympathizer. And they're like, one dude's Cuban. Like, come on, you know, <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like you're, you're saying, you're saying, you're thinking like automatically because uh, he's got a beard that he's, I don't know, Iranian or, you know, from Iraq or, you know, anywhere else in the Middle East. So, yeah. Um, and then the piece has, um, I don't know, my style. I do these things that are like fragments that look like almost like torn billboard posters or sheets or whatever. They almost resemble like flames or smoke as well. Um, within a portion of that, you know, it's like the words like son, gangster, husband, father, thug. You know what I mean? Because, you know, I just want to play into that basic, you know, mindset of individuals. different things you have so many different places that you come from what would you say is the um the part of you that you identify with the most you know I think I identify the most with uh being of Hawaiian ancestry um just my mom was super I mean my mom was super active in both you know uh both communities both the Apache and well just overall like native community and uh, Hawaiian community. Like she helped get treaties signed between unrecognized California Indian tribes and the native Hawaiians. I mean, that, that alone, like it was, it was beautiful. Like, I mean, there'd be like the Trask sisters would be hanging out with, you know, tribal leaders from like, uh, I don't know, from like San Juan Capistrano, you know, like from like the Juaninos or something, you know, it's, it was like a super beautiful time. But, um, growing up, I, I, I guess we always sort of identify with, um, being Hawaiian. Um, after my parents divorced, it was like our Hawaiian mom. And then there's our Jewish father over there. So, and then my mother and father, they're, I mean, they were both like hippies growing up. So, um, you know, my mom was like literally like the first wave of like brown hippies. So, uh, <laughs> and then my dad was like a strange photographer. I don't know, it looked like a mix between John Denver and John Lennon. I don't even know how, like, I look at photos of my mom and my dad, and I'm like, how did my dad even pull my mom? She was, like, so beautiful. Um, <laughs> uh, but, yeah, um, it's just weird because their politics are completely, once they get divorced, um, like, my dad's politics went full-on, like, Orange County Republican. Whoa. Yeah. And he was a hippie. Like he, he was a photographer. He was the photographer for the official photographer for Disneyland's Yip, uh, Yippie Day or whatever. <laughs> I don't it was know like what that weird. is. Like, 
Yeah, it's when like the the hippies took over Disneyland the, during the Civil Rights Movement. He was the photographer for uh, who was it, Warren Beatty and like the Fondos. Whoa! It was weird, and then all of a sudden he's like this crazy Orange County Republican, and and my mom's like this really down to earth, like, hey everybody, like love everybody. Yeah, it's just bizarre. Did, were you raised more by your mom, or you just identified? I was, I was I was definitely raised more by my mom. I mean, I would I would honestly just like flat out say my mom raised me like my father was always working or you know uh or gone basically so dang do you think that that's why you were kind of um so ready for a male figure as like a mentor of sorts oh without a doubt i mean um i think that, that that that's common that was common throughout my life as a whole um so growing up in Southern California, you know, even though like before my parents got divorced, like all the all the young boys in my neighborhood around my age, none of them had fathers. We were all like basically hood ass gangster kids ter- terror- terrorizing the neighborhood, breaking into cars, breaking into houses, you know, shoplifting everywhere, like, I don't know, getting into fights, like... Our, our fathers were never around. We had nobody, like, of, like, I guess, to keep us in check. And our, like, my mother, like, I'm number three of six, so my mom was busy taking care of the other, you know, all of my other siblings. So, you know, if my father wasn't around and he was never around, um, you know, there was nobody, there was nobody to keep me in check. So, I don't know, we, we always kind of bonded together and, you know, uh, at, at an early age we bonded together and kind of... Um, tried to understand what it was to be a man only to realize that like the idea of what it is to be a man in society is completely fucked up anyway. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I just, I elected not to be a man and I'll, I guess forever be a man child or something. Um, no, but, um, yeah. And then hip hop, you know, hip hop in the eighties was definitely, um, a super like influential thing. Like what saved you? I, like, I mean, it seems like that, is a path oh, of man. destruction for a lot of people. They don't come yeah, back. Yeah, I, I think what, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I was in and out of court. I had, like, you know, I've had massive amounts of probation officers. Like, you know, uh, I've I've come super close. I fortunately have never spent time in jail. I've only been in, like, holding cells. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, fortunately enough, I've always avoided jail. And I can honestly say, as corny as it sounds, like, my mom's love and love for our culture, um, for the Hawaiian and Apache side, and cultural hip-hop saved my life. As corny as, like, as, as, as much as people say that, like, on a regular basis, like, you know, hip-hop saved my life, you know? Like, no, really, hip-hop saved my life. Because I could have easily, when I was living in Orange County, I could have easily gone, like, you know, I could have I still been a crip, you know, at an early age. I could have still hung out with all the, like, you know, uh, veteranos in my neighborhood and that I was like a Chicano, but I, that, but I'm not a Chicano. So it was like, I had to figure out, like, I, I, I had to figure out who I was and I realized that I wasn't one of them, you know, so, I don't know, just backpedaling and coming, bouncing back and forth. And I don't know, my best friend, Aaron Alvarado, like all his family members were all like, they were, they were OVC. They were all Orange Barrio Cypress and Orange, you know, and 
And I used to go out and, and get into fights with them and, like, jump people into their gang. And I wasn't even part of their gang. Like, some stupid kid. <laughs> but, yeah, no, hip-hop definitely saved my life. Hip-hop definitely saved my life. When did you get introduced to hip-hop and the culture of hip-hop? Like, what was the first tape you bought? <laughs> so, uh, strangely enough, I, the first tape that I, I bought wasn't even, like, a hip-hop tape. It was... Um, I think it was actually, it was either, hold on, it was either Life is Too Short, which is not cultural hip-hop at all, um, <laughs> um, but it was, I mean, the first tape I think I officially bought was Damaged by Black Flag. <laughs> Damn, that yeah. is the real miss. Like, yeah, no, so there was, so there was this, uh, in, in the Orange Circle back in California, there was, um, a punk rock store called Razzmatazz, and my mom worked there part time. I don't, I don't like. It was bizarre. My Your mom, mom working. sounds so amazing. <laughs> my, mom is, my mom is rad. Um, but she worked at this punk rock store called Razzmatazz, and that kind of informed. And it was weird because it was like, um, okay, so there was Hot Skates, which was a huge, like, famous skateboard shop in Orange County, and then there was Razzmatazz, which was this punk rock rockabilly shop. And then right next to the Masonic Lodge, there was, like, tucked away in this corner, there was this, like, a uh, record store that basically specialized in, like, punk, punk music. <laughs> and so, like, you know, like me, like, thinking I was, like, a gangster skater kind of kid at the, the skating was heavy at that point, too. Um, I went in there and I was, like, looking at cassette tapes and, you know, I mean, I had stolen, like I said, back to the shoplifting. I had stolen, like, a bunch of cassette tapes from other places, but... I think the first official tape that I bought was, yeah, from there was uh, Damaged Black Flag. Yeah. <laughs> but hey, cultural hip hop saved my life. <laughs> <laughs> anything that you wished that you would have known or any advice that you can offer from your perspective as an artist for people who are kind of starting out? I, see, that's a tough one. I mean, I, I always think if you're just going to, if you're going to be an artist, just make art, you know, um, don't be a hobbyist, like actually just make art. Um, How can you afford that? Do you have any, I mean, are you able to afford yeah, to be an artist? Yeah. See, that's a difficult one because technically I, I make all of my money off of selling art um, or doing other projects that are tied into, I guess, creative, creative things. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I, I guess I've been – it's tough because, again, like that, that sort of advice is – I've been very fortunate. Like I feel like all of these opportunities – like I took the risks. Like I went out and I sought these opportunities and I was diehard about like this is who I'm going to meet this is what I'm going to do and like I completely manifested all that stuff and I have a long way to go still like I'll, I'll even if people call me like you know a master of my craft I'll always be like no I've still got like a, a long distance to travel before I feel even comfortable with it but you know it's it's that's a difficult that's always a difficult question I guess it's just like just be like do art try not to follow like the trends of the day like, seriously, I, I, I mean, as much as I love 
um, what magazines like Juxtapose or High Fructose or your art blogs like Arrested Motion or, you know, whomever else um, that kind of cover those trendy, you know, like the things that are happening now within like uh, urban contemporary art or, you know, uh, street art, like whatever label of the day they want to throw on it. Um, pop surrealism. Ignore those, man. Like try to find things that are, are real within yourself and develop those. Do you feel like you're just starting to tap into the native art market now? Or have you always kind of shown in indigenous um, art galleries, etc.? No, I mean, no, I mean, um, realistically, no. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I have never really shown in any um, indigenous sort of forum or, you know, institution before. I think it's, it's a, recent, a recent thing where... Um, cause I've never really been like, people have lumped me into like the street art category or, you know, like a stencil category or, uh, an aerosol art category or, you know, a graffiti category, um, whatever. But I've never been lumped into like the Hawaiian artist or the native artist or the indigenous artist, um, until like, I guess recently where I've like more so like identifying with myself. It's like, I feel okay now, like saying, um, yeah, I'm, I'm Hawaiian and I'm proud or, you know, I'm, I'm Mescalero Apache and I'm proud or I'm Jewish and I'm proud, you know? Um, so yeah, it's just, it's more of a recent, a recent development. And from that, and from that, it's kind of, it's kind of crazy too, because, um, like first off, I never realized that there was so many there were so many organizations and so much support for indigenous artists because i was always i was always so concerned with like nah i'm going to go out and like you know wheat paste a poster tonight i'm going to get i'm going to i'm going to do something on the streets or i'm going to try to impress like so and so who exists within this tiny bubble uh within a very closed off arts community you know what i mean i didn't realize that there was something so much bigger than that, you know? I mean, I knew it was there. I just didn't, I didn't think it was tangible. Like, I didn't think I, I was able to like, um, I guess, express myself within it um, until recently. Wow. So you like, kind of lumped yourself into the street art too. Like you were just like, well, this is my thing and I'm going to just stick with that right no, now. It's, and that's the weird thing was like, I never, I never identified with street art really oh, or any of these other weird labels. I mean, yes, I came from like, a background of, you know, vandalism or, you know, painting water tanks on Baldwin Avenue where <laughs> <laughs> yeah. climb rooftops in Paia and wheat pasting up like some stuff. But, you know, I've never, or even in Southern California when I was younger, like painting the 405 or the five freeway with my friends, you know? Um, but yeah, and I never identified with like those labels that, um, the art world had placed on. It was just like, I always just wanted to create because if I didn't create, then I would be a violent individual. Like I would be, I would be like out there hurting somebody. Like seriously, <laughs> I'd be making like the poorest decisions, even though like sometimes creating, you know, in, in I guess the illegal version of what I was doing isn't a very wise decision. <laughs> you know, it's you put right into the system, but um, yeah, no, I, yeah definitely like 
it's it's been more of a recent development where um, people are like, oh, he does this kind of art. Oh, and he's like Native Hawaiian and you know Apache. Like that's crazy. Like we didn't even know that Hawaiians knew how to cut paper. Do Hawaiians even have paper? <laughs> Don't they live in like, grass huts and wear like you know grass skirts and you know. Don't they sacrifice virgins to volcanoes? So, you know, it was always like this bizarre thing. Like, the people are like, wow, okay, you're doing this and you're Hawaiian. Huh. You're Stone Age people and you know how to use a blade really well. You know? <laughs> well, it's the rap beautician, the facts you listen. A blast through rhythms like hash through your system. True and living wisdom, well off and witty. Using God's sleep like the hell off the city. See my elegance, dining on the periodic table growth developments. The universe designs my intelligence. Drop signs down a bottomless pit. One swift through a handstand on pyramid tips. The more artists I'm talking to, the more I'm realizing that it's just a bunch of boxes, you know, like everybody's in their little bubbles and like how to break out and connect into other places, you know. Well, I think exactly. I think the idea is, again, back to like, just don't follow the trends. If you don't follow the trends, you're not going to put yourself in one of those boxes. It allows you the space to define yourself, you know, and then if you just if you so happen to identify with you know, a portion of what one of these boxes might, um, you know, like maybe a, a portion of your like medium might touch within something that's placed in said box, but you identify with like said indigenous artist box. You know what I mean? There are ways for you to define yourself by, you know, becoming a hybrid of those two, you know, or even expanding on that, like, you know, a hybrid of five, you know, which completely defines you, it, you, then you're then you're defining yourself. You're no longer just these boxes. You know, you could say, no, I, I do that. I do that. I, I'm, I am this. I am that. You know, like, there's no like, I don't know. I, I just I, I mean, every once in a while, like a really dope project will come up. And one of my like people that identify as like a street artist will be like, listen, we want to have you in on this project. You down to do it. And I'm always kind of hesitant because it's like, again, that street art label. But if it's for a great cause, then I'll do it. Like take, for instance, uh, my friend Logan Hicks invited me to do the Miami Marine Stadium um, project to help raise funds for that, to help restore it uh, or gain national attention. And um, so it was basically just a bunch of us volunteering our time. But the way that media, you know, the only way that like the masses um, can identify with it is if they have those labels. Right. So, um, so I was a street artist for the duration of, you know, the media frenzy that was going on around it. And, and I guess that means that I'll be a portion of a street artist in, um, on the internet, <laughs> which, uh, you know, which is forever now. So, yeah. but I definitely, I definitely don't identify as, you know, I mean, we should just flip it. Like a creative individual is a creative individual. You know, Seriously. I mean, it's not it's not like a genre of music. It's like, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I like it's weird because like, you know, people are like, well, you use aerosol. So you're a, they lump you into like, I'm a you're a graffiti artist or you're a street artist. And it's like, like, motherfucker, like Frank Stella used spray paint. <laughs> like, right? like, come on. Like, who else used spray paints? I think Siqueiros used spray paint. What? Like, like get out of here. Like. But again, like, so at Frank Stella's in a whole different art box, right? And then, like, Siqueiros is in a whole different art box as well. 
but it seems like the medium of paper is um i mean it just seems like such tedious work that you've got going on like um yeah it drives me crazy it seems like it's deserved of like to be in a in a community that's like museum type of shows you know um so so tell me about the process like tell me about how it is to cut all those teeny <laughs> weeny little lines <laughs> yeah it involves uh it involves arthritic carpal carpal headaches <laughs> um yeah all sorts of all sorts of stress um but also at the same time it's it's super it's it's heavy meditation as well like when i get into cutting like i don't know i I'll go hours like cutting or sometimes I'll go hours, hours with just staring at paper and no human interaction. And then a human will come in and I'm like frightened. Like, <laughs> God, this, like what's, what's going on here? Like what world am I on? Um, yeah, no, but I mean back to like the idea of like hand cut paper anyway, it's like weird because you're saying it's like, it's deserving of being in a museum, which I completely agree with you about like 100%. Um, but people still view it as like arts and crafts. People think I'm like people think I'm like making doilies or uh, or, or paper snowflakes, <laughs> you know. Like, make me some paper snowflakes, like <laughs> like like I'm sitting there with like construction paper and like Elmer's glue, like or paste, you know, and like and like popsicle sticks and and glitter or something. Uh, I don't know, which is fine too. I mean, other people use glitter as well. Some of my favorite collages by Wangeshi Mutu are you know got mass glitter on them, so. Um, <laughs> it seems like you have a really well-rounded perspective of the art of the contemporary art world. Did you go to school or are you just like crazy no. obsessed? No, no, I'm crazy. I'm crazy. Not obsessed either. Like I just, um, when I first moved to the East coast, um, one of the only jobs that I could really land was waiter. And I'm not good at taking orders from executive chefs. So and people that are angry because, like, I don't know, the chef fucked up their, you know, scrambled eggs. Their scrambled eggs aren't the way that they make them at home, you know. But I'm, like, not the one that cooked your scrambled eggs, you dick. So, you know, I don't, I'm not good at that. So, and then there was um, the only other thing I was sort of good at, um, being that as an artist, was basically an art handler. Installing, deinstalling galleries in New York. Uh, doing register register work and you know like, I, I had no no I, I think I knew who Picasso and like Monet were and even that was like you know uh, the art world is a very cruel so I didn't want to be uh, one I didn't want to be the help I guess in one of these you know super snooty galleries but you know like it helped inform my process and it also helped me understand uh, how to take care of my work better. Um, so yeah, go, go for every art, how about this, for, for the advice, for every artist, go and do art handling for like some super fancy gallery for like a year. And then just be like, peace, I'm out. I learned what I learned for free. I didn't have to go to art school and, you know, waste tens of thousands of dollars. How about that? <laughs> that's, yeah. that's, that's good that's advice. Good. I mean, you probably learn everything you need right there. Yeah, I mean, I learned how to, like, um, inspect work. I learned how to, I mean, okay, so Vic Muniz, like, the photographer, he did that, that movie Wasteland or whatever, mm -hmm. where he went to Brazil to the, the garbage dump. So he, they used to 
bring in the gallery I worked at. They used to represent him. So they would bring in like all of these C prints of his on aluminum. I mean like massive prints, like, I don't know, like seven by five photographic prints. And we would inspect them from the printer. And I mean, those prints now are like, some of them are like $200,000, you know, $500,000, but it's crazy how like, and this is one of the other things that's weird about the art world. It's crazy, like, upon inspecting, like, how many of them I had to destroy. So something that's worth $500,000 at one point is only worth its weight in the aluminum that can be recycled. You Damn. know what I mean? It's, it's kind of crazy. So it's like, you know, somewhere there's somebody who paid some ridiculous amount of money for a print, and a print from that edition. But then somewhere in a binder, there's, there's my signature in a book with a portion of that piece, you know, in that binder stating that it was destroyed. The one of the other ones from the edition was destroyed on this date, you know, and then taking it's taking the aluminum to the recycling center on 20 West 28th street, you know, in, in Manhattan and getting like, I don't know, like $7 and like being able to go buy a 40 ounce of malt liquor afterward or something, you know, Manhattan prices. I don't know, but um, yeah, no, it's kind of bizarre. That's just the madness of the art world, which I try to stay out of too as much as possible, that, that side of things. I mean, don't get me wrong if tomorrow somebody was like, hey, um, you know, some, some gallerist was like, hey, we want to represent you. We'll make sure that all of our high-profile clients have a piece of yours in their collection. I'd be like, that's great. You know, um, my daughter's going to go to an amazing school and I'll be able to buy an amazing building somewhere and some <laughs> ancestral land. I'll be able to go back to Hawaii, buy some ancestral land, not develop on it and just protect it for, you know, the future generations. Bizarre world. Uh, yeah. usually just you know it starts off with like a basic concept um so let's just say for the sake of concept um i want to do like a portrait of an artist that i'm a, that i'm friends with right so what i'll do is i'll go back into conversations pick out key points of their um their history and then you know uh sort of just write them down as, as just first as a thought and then i'll lay a sheet of paper up on my cutting mat and i okay so my cutting mats too, I install them on my walls so I don't cut flat. So I have these huge cutting mats. I have like um, four by eight cutting mats, four foot by eight foot cutting mats. Um, so basically I have a cutting wall right now in my new studio that's eight by eight. So I could do eight foot by eight foot cut pieces now, but I'm gonna do a build out pretty soon so I could do 12 foot by 12 foot pieces. Um, so basically from there, from like the, the cutting mat wall, I'll put up um, two sheets of paper because I cut two at a time. So I cut one for exhibition or for commission, whatever. Um, and then I have one for my archive. And typically the one for my archive is the top one that I'm constantly touching. You know, so my oils are all, all over it and pencil sketches and whatever are all, are all over it. So, um, And I, I basically just kind of stare at the paper for a bit. And um, I don't initially, I don't go right in and cut. Like I, it has to be like a, a right moment for me to cut. I don't know. It sounds kind of artsy fartsy and like all weird and mystical, but I feel like there's, there's a key moment when like 
the blade and the paper say, go to work. I don't know. It's, there's no other way to really explain it. So, I mean, there's literally times where I'm sitting in the studio just staring at a blank sheet of paper for hours. I mean, the, like, the mu- my music will be blasting, and I'll be in my zone just staring at two sheets of paper, like, you know, stacked on top of each other. So, yeah. Just waiting. <laughs> and I mean, there's times where, like, I'll literally, I'll come into the studio, and I'll do, everything's great, time to go, you know, boom. Like, it's, everything's, the vibe is right. I'll hit the paper, I'll cut, um, and then five minutes in, I'm like, oh, that's it. I'm done for the day. It's, I don't know. It's, I'm, I'm weird that way. I don't have like a, a typical, I mean, as much as I would love to be organized where I'm like eight hours a day in the studio, you know, exacto blade, <laughs> <laughs> mechanical pencil, music, coffee, water, you know, uh, yelling baby, <laughs> angry kitty cat that wants to be fed because my, my cat stays my cat I have my cat in my studio so uh <laughs> but yeah it's basically just uh paper blade and uh headaches <laughs> <laughs> do you ever wonder about involving different mediums or materials what makes you stay so um in such a thick relationship with the paper well, okay, first off, like, I want to master the cut. Like, I want to get to a point where, like, it's just, it's, like, it's completely undeniable. Like, I rule the fucking day when it comes to cutting paper. That's it. Like, I just want to be that good. I want to push myself to be that good, you know? Um, and it's super tedious, and it gets, like, it drives me crazy. So as, as far as incorporating other elements to the cut paper, I usually go back to, like, the root. So I go back to like copping tags on a, on a, on a wood panel and like laying down layers of, you know, whatever paints around or, you know, if I feel like stealing like street level billboards, you know, like I'll steal a street level billboard so I can incorporate it into the background panel and create some kind of texture and layer. Um, so that way, like there's a, a, a marriage, a, like a freeing mar- uh, marriage between like the, <laughs> the slave the slaving behind the tedious cutting of paper and then a completely like loose brush stroke that like like that's it like you know like uh black black gesso on a chip brush like hit panel like no no pre-thought out stroke no it's just it is what it is like free myself that way get completely loose so you just you can't fuck up like you can fuck up on the backgrounds, but you can't fuck up because that's all one piece of paper. Yeah, it's there's no room for error at all. Like, um, if I mess up, then I mess up. Like, take for instance, like I've okay, I've I think throughout my whole career, as far as like cutting paper and like being serious about cutting paper, fortunately, I've only messed up about two or three pieces, um, but the piece that I messed up recently was the first incarnation of that dedication to Des Rock. And I, and I messed up because I was in a bad mood. <laughs> so, so yeah, no, I, I was totally like, like what the fuck I need to have more time to do my art. I was being a total, like again, back to like, just don't be an asshole. Don't be a dick. I was totally being a dick and I was being like kind of mean to my, wife because i was being like i'm an artist i'm a spoiled artist so yeah um and i completely fucked up the first 
first version of that. So, but you know, I'm I'm always really good at. I'm not that prideful, so I'm always really good at apologizing. Good. <laughs> you know, being a good dude. So, um, there's always like a um, a moment where it's like, don't fuck up. <laughs> you know, and I tend to not fuck up. And I mean, uh, no, I mean, like seriously, like I'm 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 very patient when it comes to the cutting. You know, um, broad broad cuts like super quick ones, like it's fine. I understand my blade. I understand how to use my blade. I've been cutting like long enough that I understand that I can put the tip of the blade in and then lay a portion of the blade down also to optimize like the usage of my blade and get full quick strokes out of it. Now, when you get super detailed, just use light cuts with the tip, right? It's just all about, again, like, um, I don't know, any great calligraphist knows how to use their, you know, brush or marker or whatever tool that they're using, right? So, yeah, just, I don't know, being patient, taking my time with with the cuts, always super important. story or something from your most memorable experience being an artist like a collaboration you did or a show you were a part of or like something that you knew like I have to do this or nothing else um I would say the most memorable thing to date was my fellows residency at the de Young Museum in San Francisco that was like hands down and everything that 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 came along with that residency was incredible. Um, How did you sta- get that residency? Um, so basically the fellows project, um, the, they don't do it anymore. I think it, they lost all the funding from it, but basically you, it's, it's not an open call. You get like an, a light invite. So I had done like, I, they did like a, a Kamehameha day Fest, like they do a Kamehameha Day festival thing at the De Young Museum and like at different museums in San Francisco. And they wanted to use an image that I cut of King Kalakaua a while back. And, and my mom was like, yo, like, like let them use it. And just like, just let them use it. Like, <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, yeah, without a doubt. Like, okay, so here's this museum. They want to use my image for a portion of their festival. Cool. This will open up like, you know, dialogue with them. Uh, and then the fellows program opened up and they were like, listen, we want you to apply and, you know, shoot us a proposal of, you know, like what you want to do. And so I did, but I was going up against, it came down to two people. The first, the first year that I applied two people between me and Melissa Cody. So like naturally, like they were like, Oh, uh, badass, you know, seven generations deep of like, traditional, you know, Dene weaving or, you know, uh, some Hawaiian kid that cuts paper, (laughs) you know? Yeah. So like she, yeah, I didn't even have a chance against that woman. She's so badass. So yeah, no. So she, she got it that year. Then the following year they were like, um, 
we think that you should apply again because we're thinking about doing uh, – well, actually, it's weird because my mom's uh, was partnering with them on other projects through her nonprofit organization. And so, like, she proposed a portion of the idea of doing, like, a hand-cut paper – like thing, like oh, cool. artists that deal with hand cut paper. So it's basically me, that girl Kai, and two artists that work in hand cut paper from the Bay Area. But we were like Kai and I were the first artists because at that point you were only allowed to be an artist in California. Like you had to be a California resident. We were the first ones to um, be outsiders to be accepted for this like fellows residency, and we were the first group of like it's usually just given to one person. Wow. So we came in as true, but Kai couldn't make it because she was working on her uh, master's of fine arts. She was like putting herself in debt. So <laughs> instead of like you know, one year as an art handler in Chelsea, New York, um, that was fun. But yeah, no, it was, it was great. Like, um, so yeah, they, they loved the concept. They loved everybody's work brought us in. They gave us the whole Kimball gallery, which is on the street level, like right before you enter the museum. It's got a huge front window. I did like, the first thing I did was when we got there, I set up my cutting mats on like a wall. I cut like this seven foot by 12 foot um, piece and I draped it in the window. Like wow. literally like, like the first week I was like done with like a seven foot by 12 foot piece. Um, and then I was just knocking out like studies until, um, until I got into the swing, like just kind of like warming myself up. And then I did like three portraits. I started doing these like weird symmetrical journal entries. And then I did like another seven foot by, um, actually another 12 by 12 by eight foot piece. So I just cut constantly like, I don't know, cut, 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 and just try to stay busy. And did it end in a know? show? I did. So basically the way, the way the fellows program was set up, and this was the beautiful thing about it was it was like an open studio setting. So people got to come in, I don't know, like positive and negative, right? You, people get to come in and, you know, interact with you. And sometimes you don't get any work done. Sometimes people like to touch your artwork. Like this lady, you know, came into the museum and she basically grabbed my piece and pulled it away from the wall. And I'm like, I, I just gave her eyes. I didn't even say anything to her. <laughs> are, you, are you kidding me? Um, like you're in a museum and you touch the artwork, like, <laughs> cut our hands off. Um, yeah, no, it was great because it was it was a uh, an open studio vibe. They had these like amazing monitors that were just like panes of glass, but they had projectors that would play on loop like images of previous work. So there was a total of four screens. So each artist had their own screen as well within the gallery. Whoa! It, it's it's hard to yeah it's hard to explain, but it was beautiful. And so we got to produce our work on site that gallery was basically our studio um we got to interact with the public which was incredible like all the san francisco weirdo weirdos would come out and like i don't know like one lady was like i moved here from france because san francisco is i don't know i got a terrible french accent but san francisco is like the paris of of the united states of america and i'm like all right whatever like <laughs> crazy like that do you know about Cezanne? You know, like <laughs> <laughs> you call you call your work art. Yeah, I don't know. Um, so it was an open studio. Um, got to interact with the public, 
uh, students would come by all the time and, you know, we'd talk about our process. I'm terrible at that sort of thing. So I just kind of like, yeah, I cut paper and then like, you know, like a coward, like would walk away. Um, but fortunately the other, uh, artists were used to that sort of thing. So, um, they were, they, it was all good. And then, um, it ended at the end of our, at the end of the residency, there was, a an exhibition night. So people got to come in and see the completed works and works that were still in process. So I was still working on that eight foot by 12 foot piece. So I got to cut actually, I didn't even enjoy the, like the exhibition or yeah. like the part. I basically stood behind a barricade. My daughter had just been born during the residency. Um, so, uh, yeah, we, they, they were out there the whole two and a half months with me. So we had her a home birth with her while the residency was going on, but I was behind the barricade with my daughter and my wife and, um, cutting the piece still. And then all of that work came down and it got transferred to the Galleria de la Raza and the mission district of San Francisco, which is like this amazing, uh, like stronghold of Brown power, <laughs> you know, like amazing, like a uh, amazing spot. And, uh, we had we did an exhibition with them with all the works uh, completed works from that. So we all had like other pieces that we were going to bring or didn't finish. So it was that exhibition, and then I also did like their billboard, their historic billboard that they took over in the '70s from the billboard company. Um, mm-hmm. They let me do a cut paper piece on that. So yeah, it was all extremely amazing, um, completely life changing experience. paper is kind of popular right now as a medium. No, you're totally correct about that. I, like a lot of my friends that were diehard stencil artists are like going into this like hashtag cut paper. You know what I mean? Like, before, before it'd be like hashtag stencil, hashtag seven layers, hashtag 20 layers, 20 layer stencil. And um, no, it's great though, because it, it goes to show you like um, as like, key artists that do strictly cut paper work start to elevate the art form from like it's bastardized arts and crafts kind of like vibe uh more of these individuals are like oh wait but i cut stencils already i mean that's how i got my start you know i started by cutting stencils and i just liked the idea of cutting the paper instead so i just or you know the stencil out instead so that's what i did i just it was an easy transition for me so a lot of like people are just starting to do that they're like cut paper and it seems very mathematical in its process too like do you get like tripped out on the geometry of it all and stuff um i I get tripped out on um like how the hell am i able to cut this without it completely falling to pieces that's the main thing with me it's like i have to like it's weird it's like it's almost like a the mind of an engineer it's like, no, you can't remove that part there because then the weight of the paper will completely collapse on itself. You have to think, and I think that's one of the beautiful things about I don't cut laying down 
like I, I don't I don't cut on a tabletop. I cut on a wall. So I get to study the weight of the paper and how the paper moves depending on how much you remove from it. But yeah, no, you get to I get to understand um, like if I remove a huge chunk here, am I do I have the ability to remove X amount of paper from this point without it starting to buckle on itself, buckle on its own weight or start to like pull away and rip. Um, wow. And, and, and yes, and the, ge the geometry of it as well. I mean, uh, I think it's just, I mean, it, all things with geometry, like, you know, simple kind of like layout and process, you know, like, um, I don't know, like for a long time I was, using, I guess, like, I mean, all geometry is sacred, but I was using, like, the basis of, like, sacred geometry to create the compositions that I was working on. So in that sense, yes. And then also trying to figure out, again, that whole, will the paper buckle on itself? Or, like, will it be able to, like, withstand this much, you know, removal? Um, yeah. Wow. It's pretty intense. Um, if you could say one thing to the world or change anything about humanity or have an, have any advice or this is, this is your forum to talk to the outsider artist sitting in their studio. And, you know, like, what do you want to say? What do you want people to know about who you are and where you come from? Um, I guess if I could say anything is honor those who've come before you. Um, if you're influenced by somebody, don't be afraid to say that you're influenced by them. You know, don't act like you were the first one to invent it. I mean, I didn't invent cutting paper. I'm just trying to master, you know, it in my own, you know, respect. So, like, shout out to Carol Walker, you know, who was a huge influence on me. Shout out to, like, Swoon, like, who was a huge influence on me. You know, uh, Shout out to Tahiti, you know, who's another amazing cut paper artist, like all these cut paper artists, like if you're influenced by them, don't be afraid to say that. And yeah, and, and build your community up. Um, also, I'd like to say like um, the U.S. government should honor their treaties. And, <laughs> <laughs> yes. you, know, like, they, I, I, you know, I think that, uh, I don't know, there's a lot of like interesting things happening right now with like the, the new mural movement, you know, and a lot of places that people are going to, to do work, they're not doing the research of those communities and they're basically just embedding their ego on a wall. I feel like we as artists do have sort of a social responsibility, especially as visitors, when you go to places like do some research yeah, I know you might be an amazing painter, but there's no reason why a white tiger should be painted on a wall in Oahu. They don't have white tigers in Oahu. Sorry. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, but you know what they do have is they have a whole lot of like native Hawaiian people that are being stripped of their land and could use some sort of like support. You know, they got a whole lot of incarcerated Hawaiians that could use some support, you know? And if art is there to inspire, truly, like, and you're a badass, like, muralist, like, <laughs> or just person in general going to paint in public view, do something that's for the community. Like, not just, you know, again, not just like a white tiger.
I'm not going to front though. I mean, because I'm still, you know, I'm still trying to figure myself out as an artist. So, yeah. you know, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm guilty of it as well. You know, I'm, I'm guilty of it. Um, I'm just, I think I'm a little more aware. I think like, I think indigenous people by default are more aware of their surroundings. Totally, totally. You know, I mean, because we have to. We have to look over our shoulder. We have to be conscious of, like, being indigenous people in this modern Western world. You know what I mean? Well, not even Western world. Like, just the idea of what's been built up around us. So, you know, we're hyper aware in that respect. Um, Find a community, too. You know what I mean? Like, right now... um, not only like do I have the great privilege of having Doze as a mentor and like a couple other people as mentors and amazing individuals that are gone now, like Ram LZ, who is my mentor, like Doze's mentor, one of Doze's mentor, who's got a crazy philosophy, had a crazy philosophy on things. Um, but within the community now of like a lot of like my homeboy Ellen Y, my homeboy Mataruda, um, my homeboy Gaia. Like these guys, you know, these are like the artists that I'm talking about. Like they don't just paint on walls for the sake of painting on walls and saying, yeah, I killed that wall. You know, they do their research. They go to these communities. They embed themselves in these communities. They talk to the elders. They talk to the people. I mean, they're, they're, they're there, you know, and they paint for that community. That's what art's supposed to be in my opinion. And I'm totally guilty of just every once in a while, just being, you know, trying not to be that dick. Remember I'm trying not to be. So, um, well, yeah. Admitting, admitting that you've made a mistake in growing from it, you know, and I think that that's the big thing in American society is the ego and the individual. Like we're, we're not supposed to make mistakes or not admit it, you know? Right. So I think that, I think that being humble is really important. <laughs> yeah, it's tough too, especially, you know, I guess in a sea full of monsters, you know what I mean? Like, even within, like, I guess, again, like the, those boxes, like street art, graffiti, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like urban contemporary art, like all these things that are sort of, yeah, everybody's ego driven it seems. And I don't know, in a weird way, I feel like that helps me as well, like exit from that bubble and exit from that box because I feel like I don't really fit into that like swagger of, you know, sorts like, like I'm not the baddest motherfucker on the planet and I know it. I'm just a, an artist dude trying to do my best in my craft. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'll, leave, I'll, leave, I'll leave the, I'll leave the like, you know, uh, that, that true confidence of a master to people like those who have the pedigree and have, have helped build like everything that us artists these days that fall within these categories, unfortunately, uh, have that attitude. That's, that's hit. They own that, you know, they own that. I'll try to stay as humble as possible and learn from them and learn from their mistakes from the past and, uh, continue to rock and, and try to, you know, master of my craft. We lie on our rooftop, our hearts like the sky, 
children are sleeping, dreaming sky. It's necessary. It's time. That's the thing. I mean, everybody I'm yeah. talking to, like our generation, it's just like, I don't want to play anymore. <laughs> you know, that's how I feel like we're all just like, nah. And, and you know, the beautiful thing is, too, is we're educated in the ways that oppressed us so we can use their tools against them. That's the beautiful thing. Um, yeah, and, and I, I mean, we won't be silent anymore. I mean, I can't wait to see, you know, well, I, it's, it's a shame that I, ha I can't wait to see what happens with the resort being built in the Grand Canyon, you know? But, yeah, I mean, that shit. But, you know, like, people, people are already, you know, heavily vocal about it. I mean, let's it's put it this way. If, like, one of my homeboys that's, like, you know, Costa Rican, you know, and Venezuelan, and he lives here in New Jersey, if he's, like, getting deep into it politically and he's planning on going out to Arizona to paint a huge mural in Flagstaff that deals with that issue, I mean, like, massive mural, yeah, it's... I can, I can only imagine what's happening within the reservation communities and like the different nations in general, you know? That's the other thing too, is like the fighting amongst who pulls in the most government money. So who's, what nation is better than what nation? Like, fuck all that shit. You know what I mean? Like, I think everybody needs to figure out a way, especially this younger generation. Now, now that we're disconnected, we need to figure out a way to bond together and create a stronger unit as a singular voice that speaks on behalf of all of us, but still maintains our personal traditions, you know, and honors our personal traditions. So, I mean, like, because think about it, uh, like tens of thousands of Navajo versus hundreds of thousands of nations across all of North America and the South Pacific and Central America, you know, if, if all of us spoke up, that shit wouldn't, wouldn't go down. I mean, and the thing is, too, is like, again, we have the power to inform even outside of our circles with, like, our elders, they didn't really have the opportunity we have now. Like, they had to, like, put it in writing and hope that a letter got somewhere. Like, we can go online, we can create blogs, we could shake shit up, we can go on fucking Twitter and, like, with, you know, X amount of characters make a point. And it's, it's super, it's, it's not as difficult anymore, you know? But the problem is, is like, because of that, there's the double-edged sword is um, the oversaturation of information. So it's constantly staying on top of, you have to beat it into people's heads now. You have to beat it into their heads. Like, you can't just like do it once and then that's it. Like, you got to stay on target and constantly you know, be relevant and stay in the minds of individuals to make a, to make a point. Yeah. Do you yeah. feel like, um, art can do that? On a basic level, uh, you know, think about like what Shepard Ferry did with Barack Obama's campaign, you know, that's, that's the way it can be. Um, it's just getting enough people behind it to, again, take over those channels, you know, you got to have like a systematic way of doing it. So if you're going to create some sort of campaign around it, you've got to make sure that you have key people in certain cities that all hit at the same time and document it well and put it out into all media outlets, all social media outlets, every possible that get people talking, get people be like, what the fuck is this? 
This popped up in like 20 cities in one night, you know? Yeah. That's, that's the way it works. McDonald's campaign style. You know, <laughs> you know like fillet, fillet a fish all day. Right. So that's what you do. <laughs> you hit him again. You hit him with the, you know, you, now that you know the devil's tools, you use, use the devil's tools against them. You know, you use their, use their, their forms of, of propaganda, their propaganda machine. You know, you take their methods and you, you flip it on them. That's it. Plain and simple. Just getting, getting the core group of individuals that are dedicated to making those certain things happen. That's all it is. DIY, like no budget, you could still survive off of that. It happens. You know. Do you think it's gonna happen? I mean, I do. I do. Uh, I, I mean, I think it might. I think there's gonna be a push again with like our generation and the generation after us. But I really think what's going to end up happening is there's going to be, um, I don't think it's going to be so much like a hardcore, uh, like takeover thing. I think it's going to be from more of a universal standpoint where it is like we were talking about how we're all such mixed, mixed individuals. I think there's going to be, uh, that understanding and forgiveness and we're going to approach it from like a double, a two world side like thing, like a universal way of doing things where it's like, no, this is the way it is. We totally honor it. We need, we as caretakers need to take care of the land. This is what it is. Um, and we have a responsibility to the generations after us, you know, like look at the generations ahead of us that worked hard for us. They're going to, there's going to be more recognition of that. Yeah. 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 I believe so. What do you hope the future holds for you? What's, what's success? I, I, well, I don't think there's ever truly success. I think on my deathbed, you know, uh, just knowing that I created and, and knowing that I've earned the love from like my family and my peers, I think that's success. That's about it. I mean, right now I hope, I hope that I get this, uh, native Hawaiian fellows money. Like I applied for this native Hawaiian money and that would be incredible because it would allow me to create this body of work um, back home on the islands um, that I've been wanting to do for like five years, but just haven't had the financial stability to do so. Whoa. So this would allow me to do that. Yeah. I can't get like into the concept of it, but you know, fingers crossed, if I get it, then, you know, we might have to do another interview. Yes. <laughs> Is there anything else that you want to say or add um, like a, a sweet um, closing or whatever <laughs> <laughs> or um, a salty one. Well, I, mean, I, mean, I know. Right. No, I mean like, thank you to, to you first off for having me on here. Um, amongst a roster of other amazing individuals. Like she had Douglas miles on here. Yeah. He's Man, come on. <laughs> yeah, right. So, um, yeah, I mean, uh, thank you. Um, I continue, please don't ever stop uh, doing what you do. And I want to say thank you to my mom for giving birth to me. You know, all those, all those other things, like all of the amazing people that have inspired me um, or hated me throughout my life. Thank you for putting me where I am now. Grateful, super grateful. Thank you.
life can be so very free. We have our cares. Sometimes the future seems unclear. There is a place we all can go. It's very Time to frown. Dreamer of peace. 